thank you for joining us. What I hope will be an interesting and informative podcast around some of the latest real-world data in rheumatology. My name is Professor Peter Nash from Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane. And today I'd like to welcome, we're very fortunate to have a very busy man, Professor Paul Bird, who's a rheumatologist and the conjoint professor at the University of New South Wales. Paul is an international world authority, particularly in imaging, particularly MRI. He's done a lot of work with OMARAC, defining uh, MRI outcomes for rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis. And uh, we welcome Paul and we thank you for joining us for this discussion about recent findings of a uh, looking at combination monotherapy usage of the treatment of rheumatoid in Australia. First of all, congratulations, you're out of lockdown on Monday, they tell me. How's it oh, been? I'm excited. How's the whole COVID thing affected your practice and any lessons have come out of that COVID experience? Well, I think um, I think we've uh, well, in terms of affecting the practice, we've been able to operate eighty percent face to face, which has been wonderful, just with stringent measures to make sure that we're COVID safe, as we call it. Um, I think we've learned in practice, we've learned a lot about um, how uh, how yes to do telehealth and what doesn't work over telehealth. And you can see in the future, there's going to be applications for telehealth, but nothing beats face to face. And what lessons did we learn? Well, I lessened my learned is I love my family. But everyone's going to be screaming, <laughs> running from the house when that lockdown's <laughs> over. I'll tell you. All right. And with any luck, you might be able to travel again reasonably soon. That's but right. The biggest yeah. hassle for us at the moment, Paul, is the number of patients on Actemra. We've had to switch to something else. Yeah, that's awesome. What's happening that's been with a your nightmare. patients, the GCA yes. patients as well as the uh, RA patients? What are you doing in your place? I'm sw we're switching mainly to UPA um, because of the IL six. Um, but, you know, I think for RA, it's difficult. Uh, for the guys at the GCAs are going back to good old methotrexate. Um, you know, we're just, we're just holding on. Must have been some of them have switched in the RA group and they're doing quite well because I was stable when they switched. But I've had a couple of people go backwards very, very badly that, you know, took a long time to get there. So it has been a bit trying for them. It's been a very difficult time for patients. A lot of uncertainty. Fair enough. So... We're talking tonight about a paper recently published in Clinical Rheumatology that uh, Paul and his group have, have published. Paul, um, it's looking at real-world data uh, to treatment of tofacitinib in particular, but also management of RA in Australia. Can you tell the group a little bit about what OPAL is? OPAL is a, it stands for Optimising Patient Outcomes in Australian Rheumatology. Uh, and that opal was chosen because opal is a precious Australian stone. And when this real life database was set up over 10 years ago now, we wanted to choose something that represented Australia. And so that's why opal was, was chosen. So what is opal? Point of care software. So I'm sitting there as a clinician. I'm entering data in real time, whether it's a DAS, you know, it's a joint count, it's patient VAS. So I can get DAS, CRP, CDI, SDI, DAS 28, ESR. Um, I can also look at safety outcomes and record those. So this is a way of recording not only an electronic medical record, but all of that data from over the over 100 clinicians who use it in Australia can be de-identified and brought together to answer important clinical questions that are clinician-driven. So that's what OPAL does. It's, a, it's an EMR most for the most part for practitioners, but it's an important resource for us for doing uh, research in real-world data. Can you give us a feel for how many patients you've now got in the buckets RA, PSA, AS in the whole OPAL program? Uh, RA is getting up to about 48,000 patients now. 
PSA over 20,000, AS is a bit lower, pure AS is, is much lower, but mainly because AS, as you know, Peter, people diagnose AS in Australia uh, because that gets people onto a pathway, a certain pathway for biologics. But in fact, it'd be, it'd be nicer to know how many spondyloarthropathies we've got, how many are non-axial, how many are AS. But um, the numbers for rheumatoid are certainly very big. And it was one of our first uh, databases that we really invested in big time to get data. Excellent, excellent. And um, this particular study looks at March 2015 to 2018. Uh, can you give us a little bit of an idea about the aim of what you tried to do and, and the method of how you did it? What we wanted to do, we wanted to use um, uh, persistence as a surrogate for efficacy. Now, we've got to be careful with that because, as you know, persistence can mean many things. You stay on therapy not only because it works, but it may be because you don't want to change, your physician doesn't want to change, or there's nothing else to change to. So we're going to be very careful about using persistence as a surrogate for efficacy, but it's not a bad one. So what we said was, okay, let's use that as a surrogate for efficacy. Let's look at BDMARDS and tofacitinib because tofacitinib would become available in 2015 and there are a lot of patients who are switching across to it. So what we did is we, we took the data and we said the main study objectives, we, let's look at DAS28CRP, CDI and SDI. CDI is important, of course, because it takes out the inflammatory markers, which can change with the JAKs. And we said, let's, let's bring people in who are on BDMARD mono, BD, BDMARD combo, TOFA mono, TOFA combo. Let's match them up. So we did propensity matching to make sure they were matched up so that we could, we could reduce the variability and the extraneous variables. And then we followed them out for about 18 months. And we, what we wanted to see was how many of these people over that period are going to reach remission and what were the characteristics in the groups? You know, did TOFA perform better as mono? Did BDMARDS perform better with combo? So that was the main aims of, of why we set the study up because questions were being asked by clinicians quite rightly, you know, should I really, you know, is, is TOFA as effective? We didn't know back then. We wanted to know, is TOFA as effective as BDMARDS in keeping these people in remission? Are they gonna stay on therapy? Excellent, excellent. Could you give the audience who, who don't know the Australian scene very well, just a rough idea of what the market's like here? Um, the uptake in Jackson has been one of the highest in the world in our country. Um, yes, yes. Years. Yeah. yeah, you're right, Peter. We're very, very fortunate in Australia. Um, we have a, a stringent system, an NHS-style system, but um, so the, the, the medications are funded by the federal government once they pass muster. So they get through our federal body, the TGA, which is like the FDA. They're approved, but they're not funded. And then the PBAC is the body which will look at that, the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee, and will advise whether the drug can get on to the, what's called the free list, that is the patient can get it heavily subsidised. So to, if you think about the market in Australia, we have five TNF inhibitors. We have an IL-6 inhibitor when it's available, tocilizumab. We have abatacept. We have rituximab. We now have three jacks, tofacitinib, uh, baricitinib, and upadacitinib. Now, back in 2015, we had all of that, and the first jack to enter the market was tofacitinib. And you're absolutely right, Peter. It was interesting. The uptake in Australia was really fast. And uh, I think it was, a, you know, we sort of look back and think, why did that happen? Uh, number one, I think there were a lot of patients who were only in partial remission on therapy, and so clinicians felt comfortable moving them. Uh, it was an oral therapy, so there was a convenience aspect as well as the safety and efficacy. And the data had been out for a bit. 
And I think people are used to the data. So we are blessed in Australia. We have a large number of different medications that we can choose from to treat treatment treat people with rheumatoid and uh, psoriatic arthritis. Excellent. And I was reading that uh, the, the Jacks have something like 25% market share in RA and one in three patients go straight MTXIR to the Jacks, TNFIR to the Jacks. We're going to talk about oral surveillance a little bit later just to find out how you think it's changed perceptions and, mm -hmm. and may is the results in 2021 going to be very different to the 2015, 28 that you found? But tell us a little bit about the results of what you found in your study. So when you, when you look at the uh, setup of patients, we had 650 come in in the tofacitinib group, and that's plus or minus of the uh, conventional synthetic DMARD, so 650 all up. A smaller proportion of those had monotherapy. And we had 1,056 biologic uh, DMARDs, and they're mostly TNF inhibitors that come in. And if you look at the setup of the people, mostly female, about 80% as you'd expect in a rheumatoid trial. The age is mean is about 60. The disease duration is interesting. The median disease duration was 120 months. So these people had long-standing uh, rheumatoid. And they come in, most of them, over 50%, nearly 60% in both groups come in on a a concomitant medication. Um, it's interesting, what we find over time as we, we follow them through is that there's really no difference in remission rates over time between the BDMARD group and the TOFA group when you look at it overall. So when you look at, for example, the DAS28 CRP remission, you're getting about 57% in the TOFA group and about 52% in the BDMARD group. Uh, over time. So those, those are equivalent and it's not statistically significant. In the CDI group, it's similar, lower rates, but about 30% in the TOFA and 29% reaching the CDI remission over time. So I guess that's important. It shows that they perform as well over time uh, together and their persistence was there. The, the median persistence was about 34 months with each of these um, different compounds. But what was really interesting that came out of it was the proportion of patients on TOFA monotherapy was higher than the proportion on uh, uh, BDMARD monotherapy. So what we saw was, okay, it looks as though whether you're on a TOFA combo or, or mono or a BDMARD combo or mono, and you look at both of those groups, it seems like you do pretty well and you persist pretty well over time. But the really interesting thing is the TOFA monotherapy. And you've shown that study where you're showing how patients... Um, prefer not to take their methotrexate over time in Australia. And certainly that's what we see. Uh, we see that people go on to JAKS and we're seeing more people on the JAKS on monotherapy and remaining in remission. So that in itself is a significant advantage. And in your own practice, do you tend to start combo and then wean over time if people are doing yeah. well, or do you switch and just use mono? I usually load and taper. Yeah, just, just from bitter experience, you know, the amount of times I have said, right, let's stop all the synthetic DMARDs. Obviously, we could try and get rid of the prednisone. Let's stop the synthetics, whether it be leflunamide or methotrexate or whatever I'm using. I only have to re-add it in two months later when the patient's stuttered out of remission. So uh, for me, I, I, I leave them on. And then I my aim over time, as yours would be, is to taper people down to monotherapy. It's much cleaner, uh, much, much less uh, morbidity associated with it. So I agree with you. persistence is a nice way of saying the stuff's still working and I'm hanging in there and I'm not having side effects to make me change. Any mm. feel for the safety of the two groups, the combo mono, 
the jack and the BDMAR over time? Not from this study, because we weren't, um, that wasn't our aim that we set out um, to assess, but you're right, safety is the big focus now. So that um, from this study, we can only talk about persistence. We would actually have to set up a, a special data template to capture that information. You know, we, and we're looking at that in the future, capturing the, the big four things we worry about, venous thrombosis, cardiovascular malignancy, and non-melanoma skin cancer and capturing that data between different groups. And that's that would be a, a, a research goal for Another the future. Project, yeah, yeah. yeah, so it's and, different, but it's got to be done. How mm. do you feel the oral surveillance data, which we still haven't seen published, so it's just <laughs> a Hopefully ACL might see something. How do you feel that's affected the JAK class and how clinicians are going to use JAKs moving forward? I think, look, it's shades of Vioxx, you know. It, uh, it's been done better than Vioxx was. You would well remember the Vioxx saga where uh, the cardiovascular morbidity came in and not much was done about it and the drug eventually was pulled. Now, thankfully, everyone's getting ahead of this with the jacks and saying, okay, let's be, let's be clever about this and careful. So what's happened, as you know, the FDA has put a banner or a, a black box across all jacks at the moment based on the oral surveillance. As you know, Peter, the oral surveillance was heavy loaded, heavy loaded with risk loaded with people who were smokers and the majority were smokers, uh, over 65, another cardiovascular risk factor. And what it's shown is, yeah, certainly at both doses of TOFA, there seems to be a venous thrombosis risk, uh, MACE, lung cancer. Now, we need to see the characteristics of those patients uh, before we can make firm um, recommendations about how we stratify our risks in patients who are using JAKs. But I think what will happen, how it will pan out is we'll recognise the differences between different types of JAKs. So upidacitinib, more selective, filgotinib, more selective, TOFA, not so selective. So we'll be able to differentiate on that. And then we'll come down to risk groups. So we'll say in, for example, over 65 smoker, probably shouldn't use TOFA, probably should use UPA if that's how it works out. Or we might have, okay, previous venous thromboembolism, heavy smoker, avoid jacks altogether. So I think, I think that's where we're headed over the next couple of years is getting into a much better risk stratification for clinicians. Agreed. And it's such a shame because even mm. what we've seen, if there's a small imbalance in the two groups, smoking versus non-smoking, cardiac history, cardiac mm. aspirin, I mean, the number needs to harm is one in 589 for mace and the okay. one in 300 plus for lung cancer. And the smoking could be the difference for the lot. So I agree with you, we have to be cautious and let's at least see the peer-reviewed paper. Yeah, before... let's see the paper. I think you're right. we're all waiting for this paper, aren't we? Because- And it's um... so harsh of the FDA to slap a black box on all jacks for every immune-mediated inflammatory disease. It's just nightmare. I think you're right. It's, it's tough. It's a tough decision, but I think they've learned their lesson. Uh, from, you know, things like that Vioxx lesson, which was a tough lesson for, um, uh, for them. And, and it was hard on patients who had side effects from that medication. So I think what they're doing is just trying to get ahead of this. And it's going to be bumpy for a year or so. But hopefully at the end, you and I will have much better guidelines for clinicians to say where they can park these compounds uh, most safely. I was interested in uh, Jacks really are in the monotherapy space and really we only have Actemra as well and now can't get it. So, you know, there's a niche where we do need effective therapies without mithotrexate. So, I mean, it's an important area moving forward. 
do you see any limitations in your study? Because the criticism vocal always has been that the remission data is sometimes fudgeable to keep people on their drug because the same paperwork goes to Canberra. So tell us a little bit about what you feel the limitations might be, missing data and et cetera. Yeah, that's always the problem with real-world data, and you hit the nail on the head, is that it's dependent on the person who's entering the data. So unlike a clinical trial, as you know, where you've got people uh, taking that data, recording that data, it's dependent on the clinician uh, at the bedside reporting that data. Uh, and also it can be dependent on, you know, when the, the clinician's applying for perhaps a continuation of medication, that data um, is going to be accurate because they're not going to put inaccurate data there, but it may be a little different to someone in real life taking half an hour to do a joint count and recording every tiny bit of tenderness, if you understand what I mean, real world versus, versus clinical trials. So the, the biggest limitation we, we always get with real world data collected at the bedside is that it is, is probably not going to be as robust as it would be in a clinical trial. But we have to accept that and we have to say, okay, when we, we see that sort of thing, we have to propensity match, we have to control as much as we can and where we can use hard outcomes. So things like, uh, for, for example, I think a few years back, we did a methotrexate leflunamide trial from the OPAL group and that was hard data based on liver function tests. That's really robust data. So the other thing we can do to help our data is to get PROs from patients. We do do that. The more PROs we have, we have the patients reporting that data and that increases your accuracy as well. So you're right, there are definitely limitations and we have to be careful about how we interpret this data, but at least give us some trends and some indication of how these things perform in the real world. But the real data is critical, Paul, because um, mm. people with the comorbidities in your study would never get into any clinical trial and so, you know, recent malignancy, bronchiectasis infection, blah, blah, blah. We need that real world data because you don't see unusual rare adverse events coming to the surface in clinical trials because that's a different patient population. So I, I think it's, it's to be commended that you've done this study. And I think another one on the safety side would be very important. Um, yeah, I so, take your point. So take, mm. Yeah, a take home message for the clinician uh, from your paper? I think the take-home message is that the you can trust Jack inhibition to deliver um, uh, persistence and that we use that as surrogate, as surrogate for efficacy. And the other takeaway is that Jack inhibitors appear to perform much better as monotherapy. And that's a very important takeaway as well. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for your time. It's greatly appreciated. Uh, if you'd like to know more about this paper published in Clinical Rheumatology and others uploaded to the CSF website this month, detailed slide sets are available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or other podcast media. Give us a good rating and let us know what you think. So thank you so much, Paul. Greatly appreciated. Thanks a lot.